Thanks, Catherine. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this opportunity to gather in this new year to worship you and to saturate ourselves in your word, what is true of us because of what you have done for us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would show us through your word how you want to sanctify us through it. Would you just take a moment right where you're seated just to ask the Lord to speak to you from his word today. Father, thank you for your truth. May may your spirit lead us to all truth that we might follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it is good to be together this morning and good to worship the Lord. And I guess it's not officially the first Sunday of uh, New Year's, but it kind of feels like it. And so happy New Year. Uh, And we're eight days in. I'm wondering how we're doing on resolutions. Yeah, some of them are already like, and it's already down. Uh, One year, uh, I went to get a physical on December 27th. And I was like, this is really bad. This is going to be bad. And my doctor was even like, why are you here on December 27th? This is a really bad time to get a physical. There's something about us that knows that like, we will do better in January. Maybe it's, maybe it's eating, maybe it's exercising, maybe it's something with time management or with work or, or less time on our phone. There's just something about us. There's a restart. There's a natural restart that happens there. We have these resolutions and we hope that we get to the end of 2023 and we say, I did it. I made the changes through this year, and I'm a different person one year later. But one study I read, statistics say that 16%, 16% of people actually follow through with their New Year's resolutions. There's something about us that we need to, to know, how do we change? And how do we not only change, but how do we sustain change? How do we resolute to be a better person in whatever way we want to do that? And what about spiritually? You know, the gospel says a lot about our spiritual change. This biblical word sanctification, which just means God's Holy Spirit, his work in us to make us look more and more like Christ over time. That this process of change, how do we spiritually change? How do we spiritually sustain change? Well, today that's what we're going to talk about as we uh, continue and get into the book, uh, continuing the book of Romans in Romans 8. And throughout the entire fall, we walked through Romans, starting with Romans 1 all the way through 7. As we walked through that, we looked at the beauty of the gospel. We saw all that God has done through Jesus Christ, that we are declared righteous, that we are justified. And there's this tendency sometimes with us when it comes to the gospel to think that the gospel only really applies to our past and our future. Our past, yes, we are forgiven for our sins past, praise the Lord. And and in our future, we think, oh, well, we will be with him forever with eternal life. And yes, that's true. Praise the Lord. But the gospel has a lot to say. And there's promises, especially as we look at Romans 8, for the present, for right now. How do we change spiritually? How do we sustain that change spiritually? Well, there's two things I want us to see today as we look at Romans, the beginning of Romans 8. There's a knowledge and there is an action. There's a knowledge, and this knowledge is, a, is first a, a new empowerment. Now, as, as we heard in the reading, uh, and we'll look at it some more today, Romans 8, uh, I want us just to start with Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right from the get-go, we get one of the best promises of the gospel. And for many of us today, we need to hear this truth. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Most of us tend to have a, a one of two default responses when it comes to how we see the world. Some of us, we see the world kind of through this sort of self-loathing or self-condemning framework. Others of us, we see this, the world through this self-righteous or self-promoting framework. And, and so if we kind of take this tendency to say, oh, we see the lens, we see the world through the lens of self-condemnation, it doesn't matter if something good happens or if something bad happens, you self-condemn. This usually comes with a pretty potent guilty conscience. The feeling of being in trouble plagues you. You think I'm not really loved or liked because of the thoughts I've had or the things I've done. And at any moment, it will come crashing down and I will be condemned. And if this is your kind of natural default, default tendency, there's probably something inside of you that's nodding your head and saying, I get this. I feel this. And as much as we wish it were not true, it tends to be our core motivation. We somehow in my own self-loathing that I might avoid the, that which I fear the most, which is condemnation. Well, the other side is this self-righteousness, the self-righteous person, which kind of has an instinct to say, sure, I mean, I mess up, but I, I'm doing pretty well. I do it pretty well. I, I think right about things. I do things right. And this is a, sort of that default. And if criticism comes, it, it brings up defensiveness because why would you criticize someone who's, I mean, almost perfect, right? <laughs> Being misunderstood becomes catal- cat- catastrophic, for the self-righteous. And if you're not sure which one is your default, if you're kind of like, well, I'm not really sure, it's the self-righteous one. <laughs> because self-righteousness by itself hides itself from, by definition, it hides itself from you. And that becomes our motivator for change to somehow in my own self-righteous, my own self-promoting way to meet some standard, to be perfect, to avoid condemnation. Both of these default modes Self-condemnation and self-righteousness. They have a critical error. They're based on self. Or what Paul is going to call in our passage, the flesh. It simply does not work. Either it leads to fear and insecurity and self-pity, or it leads to pride and entitlement. It's bankrupt. And the promise right out of the shoot here in Romans 8, is there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And that promise actually speaks to both mindsets because self-righteousness is just a defense mechanism to avoid being condemned and, and, or being in trouble. And, and, the self, and self-condemns, the person who self-condemns, we can receive freedom that if God doesn't condemn us, though we deserve it, that we shouldn't condemn ourselves. I, I think starting in this year, it's a good verse for us to memorize. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, why is there no condemnation? Look with me. He continues on in verse two. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So God has already set us free from sin and death. We've used this phrase flesh. We've seen this. We're freedom from the law. We're free from the flesh. We're free from our own power because in our own power, we could not make ourselves righteous, but God has done that. And we have seen this over and over again in the book of Romans, as we've walked through this throughout the fall, that 
God sent his son so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in Jesus so that we then are declared righteous. Because of what Jesus has done, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. But there's something else that happens in that, that we receive a new empowerment. Look at verse four. He says again, we are now empowered not to walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jump down with me to verse nine. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul's making a very important point for us to understand. He says that anyone who believes in Jesus has the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us. He says it negatively. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Later in our passage, he says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Here's what that means. At the moment that we place our faith in Christ, we have said, I I want to follow him and I want him to be the Lord of my life. I want to follow him. In that moment, we receive the Holy Spirit inside of us. We don't have to do some kind of special prayer or conjure up something to receive the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. If you are a believer in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. This is one of the most profound promises of the gospel. And change starts and it sustains with this knowledge of our positional change that that we are no longer under condemnation, but also within this knowledge of our new empowerment. We're no longer motivated by self-righteousness. We're no longer motivated by self-condemnation, the flesh, but we walk according to the spirit. That which the flesh could never do, the spirit does in us. We have a new power. Now where I live, we have a lot of trees and I love our trees. Uh, I about have a love-hate relationship with my trees because in the fall, they just drop leaves like it's their job. Uh, and I'll get out there and I get the, I'll get the leaf blower and I start blowing them and then I'll just see this leaf after the part I've already done, just like slowly mocking me, just like falling. It was like, you can't do enough to get this done. So I had this uh, leaf blower for a long time. It was a battery powered leaf blower and I loved it because I could go anywhere, but it would start strong. And then over time, it would just kind of become weaker and weaker and eventually die. And I have so many leaves, I can never get the job done with the battery. Eventually the battery actually died and I thought, I'll just get a new battery. Those batteries are expensive. And so I got a new one. This one is a plug-in kind. This thing has so much power. It's unbelievable. I'm like, man, I can't believe how much power it has. It sustains the power the whole time. Why? Because it's plugged in. It's plugged into the power. And just like my battery, there's something about our flesh. We go, oh, I could start strong. I'll do this thing. I'll, I'll walk with the Lord. I'll follow him. And yet I can't sustain it. We need a new power. We need a new source of power. We need the spirit of God. And what Paul is saying is that we have it. We have a new empowerment. Now, he's first saying that the knowledge is this idea of a new empowerment. But second, I said in the beginning, there's an action. There's a knowledge of the new empowerment, but there's also an action. And this is what he says, to set our minds on the spirit. We make spiritual change and sustain spiritual change by actively setting our minds on the spirit. We make change by walking by the Spirit and not the flesh. Look what he says about this. 
You can go with me. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, here's the action. To set our minds on the Spirit of God. Because we have been set free, because there is no condemnation for us who, who are in Christ Jesus, we now are free not to live by the flesh, but to set our minds on the Spirit of God. And he sets up this comparison. He says, if you set your mind on the flesh, flesh leads to death. He says, flesh is hostile to God. It cannot please God. The flesh is bankrupt. But the Spirit leads to life and peace, he says. Which one do we choose? Seems kind of obvious. And yet, Sometimes even as Christians, we choose to set our minds on the flesh, on the self. And the flesh, it, it overpromises and it underdelivers. It's, it's like a mirage. We think, surely this next bend, they'll, they'll be what I, what I hope to get, or satisfaction, or the good life, or success, or happiness. And just like a mirage, we keep coming around the corner, and it's never there. It's never enough, because the flesh is based on self, self-sufficiency self-dependence, self-gratifying, self-indulgence. And there's two primary ways the flesh works, manifests itself. One is we call legalism, which is just this idea of any attempt at morality by keeping some standard in the power of the flesh apart from the work of God's spirit to, uh, to have acceptance from God. Now, here's what we think of when we think of legalism. We go to an extreme. We think, oh, that person's an extreme legalist. But just pull that back a bit and how the flesh works when it comes to legalism is that here's the mirage that if I can keep any standard, some standard, I form the standard, that if I can keep that standard, then I will be loved and accepted by people and ultimately by God. That's one way the flesh manifests itself. Second way the flesh manifests itself is through licentiousness. This is the idea that I, I do what I want. I want, I want what I want to get. I want to satisfy myself, so I'll go and get it. And again, we kind of think of this in extremes. We go, oh, this is the extreme immorality of licentious living or whatever. But again, the way the flesh operates, it's subtle oftentimes. And the mirage is that you alone know how you will be satisfied. I think I fear and I'm concerned that many of us may have our minds firmly entrenched, firmly set on the flesh. And that it sets up for us our, our values and our priorities and what we worry about. And we've been operating like this for so long that it just seems fine. It's fine. Paul says the flesh is hostile to God. No one in the flesh can please God, and the flesh leads to death. Now, how do we know the difference? The Spirit leads to life and peace. The Holy Spirit, we're told in Scripture, it, it indwells us. It conforms us to the image of Christ. It, it comforts us. It convicts us. It leads us to all truth. But notice something that Paul says in verse 11 about the Spirit. 
It says, the same spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Do we really believe this? Like we said last week, Kyle was preaching on Romans 7, and he said, what do we expect for the spiritual life? Do we expect defeat, sin, flesh, just to keep going down the cycle of that? Or do we recognize that this process of sanctification that God is doing in us is by his spirit? And as we set our minds on the spirit, it's not powerless. It's not weak. It's not an impotent effort because it's not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead dwells within you. Let me say that again. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead dwells within you. This is one of those times when I kind of wish we were like an amen church. <laughs> you can be. We, I, I welcome it. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the third member of the Trinity. It's the power of God. This is not an add-on. This is not a supplement. This is not a vitamin. This is essential to our spiritual life. It is essential to how we change and it is essential to how we sustain spiritual change in our life, not just for this year, but for 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. So what does it mean to set the mind on the spirit which leads to life and peace? It's a yielding, it's a, it's a submission, it's a listening to the Holy Spirit. It's a rearranging of our life in such a way that, that we follow the Spirit. Sometimes we tend to think of the Holy Spirit like, a, like one of that little white angel on our, on our shoulder that's like, eh, 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 or, you know, don't do that. And yes, the Holy Spirit does guide us, and it does give us wisdom. But I want us to notice what the Spirit is telling us in this passage. And we read it earlier, but I want us to see it again. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. What is the spirit of God doing? The Holy Spirit is whispering into our deepest places to say, you're a child of God. You might feel like you're isolated or an abandoned orphan, but you are chosen of God. You are loved of God. You are not only a child, but you are an heir of the throne of grace. The Holy Spirit is saying there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The Holy Spirit is saying, I know that you think in some ways following some standard that will set you free, but it won't. The Holy Spirit is saying in some ways, oh, I know that if you think indulging the flesh, that will give you what you really think, but it actually won't because God has already given us everything for life and godliness. Everything he has is ours. Spirit says you have not received a, a spirit of slavery that leads to fear. What's at the heart of self-condemnation and self-righteousness? Fear. But instead, you have received the spirit of adoption as a child of God, as we sang, I am a child of God. What does that do to us? It gives us a new motivation. It gives us a new life. It begins to shape how we think, shapes what we do, how we act. It shapes what we love. We might begin to have gospel instincts 
that our spouse says something hurtful and, and instead of either cowering in shame and, and, and running away uh, or instead of, uh, you know, coming back with venom, we have gospel instincts to how we respond to that. Or something good happens to us. Maybe it's a promotion or some success on some level. And either we have this kind of self-righteous, ah, I did it really well, or this self-condemnation, like even though I got this thing, I didn't do it perfectly. That our instinctual voice would not be one of self-condemnation or self-righteousness, but that of the gospel. We set our minds on the spirit. It brings life and peace. To set our minds on the spirit means we actively are listening and submitting to what God's doing. This is an action. It's an effort. It's not an earning. That's the difference. But it is an action and it's an effort to set our minds. Like the leaf blower, I have to stay plugged in. I stay plugged into the power source with the Holy Spirit. It takes action. And as we go into this new year, I just remind everything we do, from the youngest person in our church, whoever that, whatever their name is, to the oldest person in the church, I won't say their name. Uh, everything we do is about following Jesus. It's about setting our minds on the spirit of God. From our littlest kids who hear the promises of the gospel read over them. And as they grow, they begin to learn and, and read the Jesus Storybook Bible and see Jesus in every story. And as they get into elementary, they begin to say, wow, I'm, I'm learning the stories of God and who God is and how that points to Jesus. And as they get into middle school and high school, there's this discipleship element that says, how, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Not only as an adolescent, but for life. And for us as adults, everything we do is about this discipleship, following Jesus, sanctification, God's Holy Spirit work in us to grow. And this time of year, we oftentimes ask the question, how will we intentionally pursue discipleship as a church and as an individual? And Michelle already mentioned this Wednesday, we'll start uh, the, the, the three-week Bible study on how to read the scriptures, how to interpret the scriptures. The Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures and speaks through them. That's one of the key ways that we hear from the Lord is through the scriptures. We understand what he's saying to us and how he is pointing us to himself and guiding us along the way. Right after that, men's and women's groups will start as we always encourage. Also, our community groups are, are going. These are things that we do, not just to do them, not just to check it off the list, but to set our minds on the spirit. That as we pray for one another, as we're engaged in community, as we hear God speak through one another, these things engage us. Sometimes we tend to think of discipleship or setting our minds on the spirit as only receiving, but it's not just receiving, it's also giving. There is nothing like trying to teach kids the Bible that will cause you to be Holy Spirit dependent. It's serving and using your gifts to engage in such a way, that's how we grow. It's how we grow as a disciple, by engaging with him and using our gifts to do this. The Holy Spirit uses scripture and prayer and community and, and serving in our gifts to speak to us. I'm convinced the Holy Spirit is trying to speak to us through whatever way possible. His word, community, prayer. And for some of us, it may be a reworking or some reestablishing of priorities. Because if we set our minds on the flesh for a month or a year or a decade, it's going to take some changes. It's going to take some reworking and some action and effort to begin to set our minds on the spirit. As one author put, to set the sails for the spirit to move or to stay plugged in to the source. 
I think a good resolution for us in 2023 is to set our minds on the spirit because it's where life and peace comes from. And the way we change and the way we sustain change is by knowing our new empowerment that we have the Holy Spirit, that what has been done for us is complete in Christ. But also, it's an action of setting our minds in the Holy Spirit to seek him through his word, prayer, community, and using our gifts to set the sails for the Holy Spirit to move in us. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead dwells within you. Let's submit to it and walk according to the Spirit for 2023 and beyond. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the gift of the gospel and in it the gift of the Holy Spirit. That it is not um, some add-on or supplement, but it is essential to the spiritual life. And we pray for us that as we prepare our hearts for communion, that we might be reminded that all of this is about what Jesus has done for us, his life and his death and his resurrection. And as we partake in communion, we want to just take a moment to reflect and to repent for the ways that maybe we have set our minds on the flesh. And for the ways that that just sort of seems normal now. But Lord, we say what is true, that it is, it leads to death. It's hostile to you and it cannot please you in the flesh. So our desire is to walk by the spirit. And so we repent and we turn from walking by the flesh and we say, we want to walk by the spirit. And where do we turn when we re- repent? We come back to you and we come back to the fact that Jesus on the cross died for our sins once and for all. And he has graciously given us salvation, forgiveness, eternal life in the presence of the Holy Spirit as we walk. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.